Hi everyone, just some very quick announcements at the top of the show. First of all, we have indexed the transcripts of the episodes that are available. So you will know that I write scripts for most of these episodes, and I've also managed to have some of the interviews we've done transcribed. If you go to physicspodcast.com, you can now find those on the About section. Uh, They're indexed with a link from each episode you can get to its transcript. So if you want to read along, if you want to read some of the things that I've said, most of the transcripts for most of the episodes are now available there, uh, depending on whether I have them on my hard drive or not. The other thing is a new Patreon plug. There's all manner of stuff available up there at the moment. There's over 20 early release episodes, including eight from our Negative Emissions series and another eight or nine, I think, from our Cosmology series. So there's plenty of topics there. Um, that you can get pretty much the whole next year's content of the show early if you wish to. And on top of that, there are some special bonus episodes that I've been working on too, which will only ever be available there. And another thing I've started to do as well is improvisational episodes up there. So book reviews, stuff that I'm reading, stuff that I'm thinking about, uh, anecdotes that I want to tell from history and from science and uh, from from economics and politics and all this sort of thing. Um, I've started just recording those as sort of semi-live streams, which you can listen to up there. And again, just as another sort of bonus way of putting out some fun and interesting content. And we've had some interesting discussions there off the back of that. So if you want to get involved with that, feel free to do so. Patreon.com slash physical attraction. Enough of the desperate plugs and on with the rest of the show. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. This week we have a guest on the show, Rodrigo Aguilera. Rodrigo is an economist, he was born in Mexico and he lives in London, and his writing has appeared all over the place in various forms over the years. Specifically, in these episodes we'll be talking to him about his book The Glass Half Empty, debunking the myth of progress in the 21st century. Now, this may sound like a rather gloomy take to pick, but the point that he's making is essentially that we shouldn't be happy with a narrow and limited definition of progress when we actually have the capacity to achieve so much more. But of course, if we genuinely do want to see progress, if we want to see things like the elimination of poverty, the application of human ingenuity and compassion, rationality and empathy and all of the good qualities that we think about ourselves, towards solving the problems that exist in the world, you know, if in other words we want things to actually get better, rather than just complacently gesturing at lines on graphs which tell us that things are getting better, We have to begin with an accurate assessment of where we actually are right now, what has led to progress in the past and what barriers still remain, and therefore how we can get further in the future. Rodrigo was incredibly generous with his time, and so I split the resulting interview into two parts. You're about to hear the second part of the interview, where we dig into the flaws associated with new optimism in more detail, specifically how they relate to different countries developing. And at the end, we have a discussion about how we might hope to make the glass a little bit fuller in the future. As well as within societies, and you've sort of talked about how, in a lot of these cases, it is only the progressive taxation system and redistribution and so on that is making them less equal. Um, Within societies, there's also a great deal of inequality between different societies, between different nations, which is essentially preserved and enforced by a lot of the institutions of global governance as they exist at the moment. Um, you know, we have a couple of episodes of this show where we are going to review Jason Hickel's book, The Divide, which explains how some of these mechanisms are working. 
But um, the, the idea behind the new optimists, if they concern themselves at all with global poverty as a problem and don't just see it as a sort of a, a thing that is relentlessly getting better or some sort of inequality that is going to be erased over time, um, is to sort of attribute the fact that Europe and the US are rich to technological development or liberal democracy or economic growth or all of these, and that inevitably these things will spread to the rest of the world if they're allowed to do so. So, I mean, what, what do you think about that, the inequality between nations and uh, how the new optimists, I suppose, get it wrong by assuming that there, there's only this inequality because these countries have, for some reason, refused to follow the pathway that Europe and the US um, have, have laid out? Yeah, well, I think the, there's there's two there's two things here. There's there's the spread of ideas and then there's the spread of, of, of technology. Um, in terms of ideas, you know, the spread of liberal democracy uh, or liberal capitalism as well. You know, this, this to some extent has happened and, and, you know, most society, most countries on earth today are liberal democracies and are liberal capitalists. Um, but, you know, it, the, the reason cap, uh, democracy and capitalism work in some countries or another is, is a very, very, uh, complicated question to answer because, you know, it depends a lot of, of, you know, historical path dependencies, um, culture, et cetera. And these things, you know, don't, don't change that easily. You have countries that were supremely successful. You know, uh, one, one classic example in Latin America is Argentina, which was one of the richest countries in the world at the beginning of the 20th century. And, you know, one of the few countries that I think you, if, if the term first world existed in 1910, you would definitely put Argentina in that list. And, and now definitely you wouldn't. Um, and on the other hand, you have very successful countries, a, a very small amount of very successful countries that have managed to overcome, uh, these, uh, their, their handicaps. Korea and Taiwan are, are two of the be better examples, Israel as well. What's interesting about these cases, and I, when I was back in my undergrad days, I, I really looked at the Korean and Taiwanese case as a as a kind of model of how a, a poor developing country should, you know, the right policies that they would need to to eventually become rich. And what's interesting is that most countries today would not be able to do what they they did. Um, and there's many there's ideological reasons, but there's also legal reasons. So ideological is, is because, well, in the kind of neoliberal era, post eighties, neoliberal era, uh, something very basic such as industrial policy has been completely shunned. Um, you know, there's, there's a saying that the best industrial policy is no industrial policy and just let the market decide what each country should produce on the basis of comparative advantages between them, et cetera. And that's just not what like the rich countries did. Um, you know, if you look at, you know, by this, by this logic, Britain almost would be the only, uh, manufacturing nation on earth, uh, if, if that had happened. Uh, but it's precisely because a lot of countries decided to get into the same businesses that Britain uh, pioneered that they eventually overtook Britain in those same industries for reasons that may have not have been clear at the moment, only in retrospective. So industrial policy is, is something that I think is, is absolutely essential, but it is, it's very hard to find a government in, at least for example, in Latin America that really wants to make a case for industrial policy, just because that would go against kind of the prevailing orthodoxy. Then there's also the issue of, for example, trade agreements. Trade agreements aren't just about trade. I mean, we need, we need to get that absolutely clear. Uh, trade agreements incorporate a, a lot of different aspects, you know, 
uh, intellectual property regulation, capital controls, industrial policy restrictions, uh, like state aid, for example. So they basically constrain the, 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 the tools that you have to, to actually emerge out of, out of, uh, uh, under development. And I, I mentioned in the book that if, if Mexico and Mexico, you know, by, by developing country standards is, is among the most advanced, um, you know, it's, it's a, one of the biggest manufacturing countries in the world, one of the bigger exporters in the world, you know, produces cars, produces, uh, television screens, etc. You know, it has industry, it has technological capacity within it. Most, most, most of it is foreign owned. Um, so if we wanted to develop like a domestic industry, um, we couldn't do it that easily because our free trade agreements with the U S and Canada actually restrict us from doing it. Um, so you look at the pattern of, of convergence and actually from the seventies, it's gone down. You know, the, the developing world was catching up to the rich world up until the seventies when you had the oil crisis. And then, uh, you had a debt crisis in, in many, uh, developing countries. And since then it's gone downhill. So Mexico is poorer. And this is an argument that I also speak to with sort of my centrist and conservative Mexican friends. It's like, well, Mexico's, you know, is doing fine. You know, we're, we're not growing as much as we could, but we're progressing. It's like, well, we're poorer relative to the U S now than we were in 19 in the late 1970s. So I'm not quite sure, you know, we'll keep getting better, but then the standard of what it is to be a rich country is just going to get higher and higher and higher. We're never going to, we're never going to make it. Um, Hans Rosling in Factfulness gives a really bad example of, of how Sweden in the 1950s uh, had the same GDP as Zambia does today. Um, but the interesting thing is um, Sweden was, sorry, Zambia today is poorer relative to Sweden than it was in the 1950s. So yeah, Zambia grew. It's just Sweden grew faster. Um, so, you know, this and, and what you've mentioned as well, of, of, of what we've mentioned of kind of the system of global governance is not conducive. It's, it's, de- in my view, it is, it is deliberately designed to kick, to kick the ladder of development. And I think that, that is a, a point that Jason Hickel makes into divide very well. It's a, a very good book. I, I thoroughly recommend it. Mm-hmm. So I think, again, it, it comes down to how do you define progress? Is progress, I'm better off now than I was 20 years ago by any amount? Or is it more a case of, well, I should be developing at the same rate as these wealthier nations, or even faster to converge to them? And yet that is clearly not what's happening. And I think particularly within this question of uh, continued economic inequality between countries, and you know why there are still poor nations and why there are still wealthy nations, um, which is the book that the, the divide sort of seeks to explain, the fascinating thing here is that one of the favorite statistics of the new optimists um, kind of undermines the philosophy um, that that they would bring to this question. And the statistic I'm talking about is the World Bank poverty line, uh, which is, you know, the number of people who are living on less than $2 a day or so, um, and how that's declined over the years. And if you actually dig into that statistic, I mean, yes, it has declined over the years since um, over over many decades, it's declined. Um, but if you look into that, a lot of that progress has come from China. Uh, and as you point out in the book, uh, regardless of what you want to say about uh, China's record on all sorts of things, from human rights to other things and so on, the, the 
the progress that they took for their economic development looks nothing like the progress that is recommended by um, these sort of international institutions and so on. Um, it, it's not about free market capitalism, trade liberalization, uh, deregulation, opening yourself up to these trade agreements and so on, um, which is the sort of th- thing that was imposed on a lot of developing nations after the oil crisis as a kind of condition for um, paying off debts and so on that had been taken on before that crisis. Um, so w- would you like to talk about that a little bit, just in terms of <laughs> partly how the the picture in China sort of undermines the, the growth model that is uh, being foisted on a lot of developing countries? Um, and, and then we can get onto that statistic in more detail as well, because I think it's really interesting as a case study for explaining why the surface level logic of new optimists um, gives way to something uh, you know, a lot less rosy underneath. Yeah, I think poverty is is probably the indicator that uh, is most central to their narrative. So it's definitely one that I, I go to lengths debunking. The China case is interesting because China China's a country that because it doesn't really follow a development model that has been undertaken by any other country in the past, it, it China can be whatever you want it to be. So if you want to justify capitalism and free markets, uh, you can always say, well, look at China's growth now after it adopted capitalism than before, or, or well, when it adopted markets than, than before. Like, yeah, that is, that is a valid point. Uh, it's disingenuous, but it's a valid one in a way. Um, and there's also, you know, those who would say that China's still communist, uh, and, and look, communism is not incompatible with, with, uh, with markets, et cetera. And, and to be honest, they're, they're not really a socialist country. I mean, they're, they're basically a state capitalist uh, country. Um, you know, they, they, the point that I make in the book and I, and I include a table with the 10 points of the Washington consensus, the, the Washington consensus being these 10 points that were used as the basis for all these structural adjustment programs um, that the World Bank and IMF imposed in the 80s and 90s, as you mentioned. So China violates, I think, all 10 of them uh, to some degree. Uh, in, in some of them, just completely, like, uh, totally violates them. Yeah, so for, for the wonk, should we just go through this really quickly? Because I have it here. So the 10 points here, we've got fiscal discipline, uh, reorientation of public expenditures, tax reform, financial liberalization, unified and competitive exchange rates, trade liberalization, openness to foreign direct investment, privatization, deregulation, and secure property rights. And in essence, as you say, China doesn't do any of these things. Yeah, I think fiscal fiscal responsibility is the only one that you can argue that, that they do. But then also because so many of their companies are state-owned, uh, then their like corporate debt is like it's a very blurred boundary between corporate debt in China and and state debt, uh, just because it's not government debt, and and they have a pretty big problem with corporate debt. So so maybe even that one they don't really uh, adhere to as much as they should. But yeah, I mean that. The, the model that they that they've chosen has been very successful and it's it's successful because it's gone against what the Washington consensus proposed because what what the Washington consensus proposed was you know even if you're naive enough to assume that there wasn't an ulterior uh, uh, motive for for these policies which I think there was and I think, again if you read the divide 
you'll definitely get the sense that it was to basically keep the developing world poor. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just not it's just not helpful at all. And um, again, it's China had certain advantages that other countries can't necessarily uh, replicate. But in, in in many ways, it's because they're so so you know China and India are such big markets that they can do a lot of the things that other countries aren't allowed to do. So, for example, when China wants to get foreign investment, they condition that foreign investment to technology transfers, which is great for them because they're getting a lot of technology for, you know, what they don't rip off. And, and for the record, I'm not saying this as uh, as a negative thing. I think, you know, Korea and Taiwan also ripped off a lot of technology. And I think that's, that's what developing countries should do, you know, rip off technology. That's why... Uh, Westerners put these barriers for intellectual property, so so their technology could not be ripped off. Um, but that's that's the way to go. They 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 have that outlet of of how to get technology that, like, say, Mexico wouldn't, because Mexico is a big country, but it's not big enough as China. It's not as big as as India, and therefore it's not as lucrative. And a company that wants to invest in Mexico, if Mexico conditioned that investment on technology transfer, they would just say no. Mm-hmm. So they, they sort of, China and India, as you're saying, kind of have this ability. They don't have to go down this route of completely deregulate your economy, open yourself up completely to trade and foreign direct investment um, as a way of growing economically, which a lot of developing countries have had to do. And of course, the problem with that is, number one, it means that your your state is effectively weakened because the economy depends so much on this foreign direct investment. Uh, number two, you know, the quality of life for your people is is not so good because you're not allowing them to unionize and so on. And then number three, you know, when another country comes along that tries to outcompete you, there's no capital controls or anything. So all the investment can just run off again and go to another country and uh, sort of leave you in the lurch a little bit. So you're quite vulnerable there. And also the point that I think Jason Hickel makes as well that's very interesting is that this isn't, not only is it not how countries that have developed uh, more successfully, like China and India recently, are, are doing so, um, it's also not how a country like Britain historically developed. You know, initially we weren't open completely to free trade. We had barriers that protected our industry from other competitors and so on. And, uh, you know, only when these things had been established did we suddenly become in favour of, uh, of of free trade and opening things up. And I, I think it's just uh, interesting to point out that, you know, the the new optimists in, in their endless sort of pointing at graphs that are going up and so on sort of ignore all of the mechanisms behind... Um, how these graphs are going up, and and uh, you know what what it is that actually has allowed um, progress to happen historically, um, and why those conditions might not be uh, replicable across lots of different nations, and so you're instead sort of left with this kind of trickle down theory on the global level, as well as trickle down theory within countries, um, that is sort of not working um, to alleviate poverty as quickly as a more egalitarian system would do. Yeah, I think the point that you make is is very is a very important one, and I think it needs to be underlined. Which is this idea that the developing countries did not follow the the formulas that they then kind of preached for the rest of the world, and you know they were very protectionist at the very beginning. Um, they were not these free market, uh, liberal free market societies that uh, that they'd like to paint themselves with. Um, this argument has been very well developed by uh, Ha Jun Chang. He's a Korean economist, has written a couple of books on, on this topic. Um, and, he, and he's basically written a lot about this hypocrisy of, of you know, the, the the model of development that is now given to the world is, is basically the exact opposite that the very, that these rich countries had. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, I want to talk now about specifically these metrics and these statistics. Um, and in in deeper terms here as well, this fetishization of metrics and statistics has its own big problems. And this is something we talk about all the time on the show. It's important to be able to quantify things so you can measure them. But when you do, you're inevitably leaving out important, probably vital information. And of course, also, when the metrics become what motivates your policy, they can cease to be good measures of what you're actually trying to do. We see this in economists obsessed with GDP. We see this in poverty lines that get shifted around so that different people are on different sides of them or that are only barely crossed and so on. Um, And I think one thing that is interesting is to just home in on this one statistic here and uh, we can really talk about it. So the classic statistic they like to cite is the number of people in what's classed as extreme poverty. If you define the poverty line at $1.90 a day, as the World Bank does, the percentage of people in extreme poverty has fallen from 40% to around 10% between 1981 and 2015. Now, the classic sort of new optimist line is to quote a statistic like this and then attribute the cause to whatever they're sort of philosophically in favour of, and not to kind of dig deeper into what the statistic means, how it's happened, and also comparatively what could be possible. So with respect to this particular statistic, could we dive in a little bit and talk a little bit about the limitations on this definition of extreme poverty and the limitations of trying to quantify it in this one metric and how it exemplifies the kind of new optimist rhetoric more broadly? Sure. Um, This is a a very, very uh, misused indicator, in in my opinion. Um, So first, let's, let's go through, through sort of the historical precedent, which is there's really no reliable uh, poverty estimates for the world before the 1980s. Uh, you know, they, you can extrapolate it through uh, income data, but it, but but we really haven't been in the business of like country by country um, tracking poverty since the 80s. So anything before the 1980s must be taken with a pinch of salt. That's not to say that that like the general trends uh, are wrong. Um, but I'm just saying, like, we haven't really done this exercise since the 80s. Now, the the intention of an international poverty line is is really more, I would say, more journalistic than academic. I think academically, it serves no purpose whatsoever. Like, it's it's not important to know what the the global poverty rate is when there's so many differences in, in you know in what you can do between jurisdictions. Uh, you know what I mean? It's just a fun fact and it's a quotable, a very quotable fact. And I think that was really the original intention of why the, the World Bank produced it, not because they really wanted it to be kind of the uh, the end all definition of, of, of what poverty around the world was. Uh, so it, it, they kind of created a monster that went out of their control. I think I, I don't think they did it uh, as, like I said, like, you know, maliciously as uh, like, yeah, this, this is the final word on poverty. Now here's, here's the definition of it. Uh, it started at, at a very, again, the reason why I, I think it's a, a very kind of journalistic exercise is, well, it started with $1 a day. So it's easy to kind of picture. Okay. Poverty is, is if you are not below a dollar a day, then you're poor. If not, you're not poor. Um, and it's been constantly revised. The current level is $1.90 a day. Now, a lot of people think that it's just a, like this number is, well, how, how would you live? You're poor, basically, if you live in 
Somalia with 190 US dollars. And that's not what it actually is. So this 190 is based on purchasing power parities. Now, purchasing power parities is the key to understand why this is so problematic. A purchasing power parity uses a base year and a base country. In this case, it's 2011 and it's the US. So when you say that, that you have an income today, anywhere around the world, whether it's Somalia or Mexico or Britain, uh, if you have an income of 190 a day, it's comparable to 190 in 2011 in the US. So that's the sort of standard of living that that is measuring. Now, we do this to, to adjust GDP all the time because there's an unfortunate aspect of just you can't, it's not always a good exercise to just uh, translate GDP. So Mexico's GDP in pesos or Britain's GDP in pounds to translate that into dollars and say, well, that's that's how rich Britain is relative to Mexico. Because a lot of things are much cheaper in Mexico, are much cheaper in Mexico. So it's unfair to make that just direct exchange rate conversion. So purchasing power parities adjust that for the fact that uh, uh, purchasing power in Mexico is much higher than Britain. So if, say, uh, uh, Brits on average are probably like five times richer, uh, you know, in GDP per capita terms than a Mexican is, if you adjust for uh, PPP, it's probably maybe a fourth. Now, this is the reason why this is a problematic indicator for poverty is because when you think about it, if you were living in the US in 2011 on 190 a day, you would die. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that's kind of a fact. Like you would starve. You would basically be homeless. You would basically be scrounging for food. Um, you know, maybe you wouldn't die, but you, you would find it very, very difficult to have any kind of meaningful life, own assets or just anything. So it's really, really low. And, and, uh, the idea that we that that anything above this threshold, and I should note that this they don't call it extreme poverty anymore. They they just say that this is the poverty line. Um, so that's that's quite sneaky. So the idea that that anything that like if I'm earning two a day, suddenly I'm not poor, seems a bit absurd. And you know the the World Bank, to its credit, has various different lines. Um, it has one that's, I think, three something, another that's five something. But there's been a lot of studies that say that actually the, the international poverty should, should be much higher. It should, you know, some say as, as much as over 10 a day, um, which is their threshold for middle class, which is also a bit ridiculous, if you ask me. Um, so what, what basically, when you realize that this is such a low number, the only conclusion that you can derive is, yes, we have reduced the absolute destitute of humanity. That is true. No one's going to deny it. Um, but we haven't really solved the problem of, of people being poor and people, you know, worrying over whether they're going to eat today, uh, whether they have decent housing, etc. Because you, you just can't assure that on 190 a day. So when you take a higher number, say the 551, uh, which I think is still low, but at least it's a bit more realistic, suddenly things change. And suddenly that huge drop in poverty worldwide doesn't look that nice. And then if you take the, the, the next exercise, which I do in the book, that you strip China out of the equation, 
it's it's hardly budged. So there's been a very very tiny increase in in a reduction in poverty around the world. If you take China out, and if you take the higher 550 number a day, so they're they're you know they they're that's the the main issue of just using a global poverty line because a it's too low and two when one country has had such a monumental impact on poverty reduction on a global level like China it really skews um, the performance of everyone else mm-hmm. and I think this is kind of the fundamental irony here because the last time I saw this graph actually before reading it in your book it was someone who had tweeted this graph of extreme poverty according to the world bank going down and uh, the caption was like thanks capitalism or something and sort of the irony is um okay if you look at this uh what's actually happened well a lot of this progress has been made in china uh which is not exactly you know the it as you say it's interesting china is a bit of a chimera you know when people want to point to how well china has done they say it's because it's a capitalist country when people want to talk about how bad china is they say it's a communist country um you can't really win with that um the, the reality is that as we say it it's adopted this uh, procedure of growth where the state has led first and then private industries have come in later. And this, I think, is a key point for people to understand because the, the, the idea that it's just capitalism that does this or that it's just free markets or, or liberalism or whatever that does this is wrong mechanistically because a great deal of the progress and development is, is being made in countries that can actually use government expenditure to finance things like sanitation, public health, education, and so on. You talk about, in, in essence, in the book, all of these things that lay the foundation that will then allow, um, you know, this, this sta- the sort of structures of liberal capitalism or whatever you want to say to work once you have that foundation that's laid underneath these things. Um, the thing that's necessary to be there for business and enterprise to actually take off is, is not there. And the private sector doesn't provide this stuff. Even in the long run, it's beneficial for economic growth because it's not profitable for them to do it in the short term. You know, there's no no one is necessarily making money by providing uh, sanitation or education to uh, the destitute in the world. And the profits don't directly accrue to you for doing that. So if you leave the market to sort it out, the market won't sort it out. Um, so, you know, again, this idea that acting like free markets, capitalism, deregulation are going to be the cause of progress, even on this kind of metric, just ignores the mechanism um, of how it has actually happened in the places where it has happened. Um, and so I think that that's an important point to make that kind of cuts against the new optimist idea. But also when it comes to these uh, these individual statistics and metrics, um, as we say, when you try and reduce everything down to one number, you're obviously ignoring a lot of things. And one of the things you ignore is where progress is unequal or it's felt unequally. So, you know, a new optimist might say that a trade deal is beneficial when it boosts the GDP of both countries involved, but that would ignore if the trade deal affects specific industries that are disproportionately, you know, damaged by the deal. Or, you know, we see that things like the costs for healthcare, education and housing in the West are increasing a lot while wages stagnate. And, uh, you know, there's the threat that in, in the West... Um, you know, the, the young generations are set to be the first to be a long time to be worse off materially than their parents. So I think if, if you could discuss a little bit, if you wanted to talk about how these kind of aggregate statistics are obscuring um, unequal outcomes. And then this comes back to that that moral egregiousness of the situation idea that we have, that uh, you're aggregating statistics and ignoring the fact that some people are harmed or at the very least not benefited nearly as much as others. Yeah, I mean, you have to... 
you know, I, I think the, the point that I that I make in the book, and I definitely it's, it's a point that I I must stress uh, here in this discussion, is that you know we're not denying that progress has happened, um, but we're questioning kind of the arguments that they're giving on why it's happened when it has happened, uh, and this denial that the state has had any role in in development is is absurd and it's and it's it's factually wrong and. I think Pinker doesn't go that far because, again, I think he does have some kind of social democratic sensibilities um, that the libertarians don't. But, uh, you know, if, if you look at uh, Johann Norberg, his book, which is called Progress, 10 Reasons to Be uh, what is it? Ten Reasons to be Happy or Optimistic About the Future, something like that. Um, you know, he gives an example of how India was a very uneducated country, but then uh, these private schools were open and people could take their kids to private schools and, and now education levels are much higher. And it's like, well, that's not exactly how, uh, how things work. I mean, there's, there's, there's an old economic theory that, that basically says that the rate of return in a, in a less developed country is, will be much higher than, than in a wealthy one, uh, which gives the impression that then, well, if you open markets, uh, then, and you deregulate, then foreign companies are going to immediately swarm uh, and start building the hospitals, the water treatment plants, uh, everything. And that's that's not how reality works. I mean, I think when you're at a level of, of, of destitution, it really it's the state that has to come in and, and then provide the basic building blocks uh, after which then private companies can come in and, and, and compensate from that. And, and another book uh, that I would very much recommend in this regard is, is, is uh, The Entrepreneurial State by Maria Mariana Mazzucato, uh, which basically debunks all these all these ideas that the state is inefficient and it's only private companies that, that can get things done. I mean, no, that's that's not true. Um, you know, you, you, you see the more successful private interventions once a, once a country is at a higher level of development than, and if what we're trying to do is, is lift these countries out of poverty, then there's a limit to how much just free markets and just what private uh, interventions can, can achieve. Mm-hmm. And again, this idea of the kind of the aggregate statistic that obscures things, I think GDP is a great example of that because, you know, you can say that GDP is continuing to increase in, in nations like America and Europe and so on, but, this will ignore uh, all of the other things um, that, that are going on in these countries at the same time. So, you know, financialization, who's getting a hold of the increasing GDP. When it comes to thinking about the economy um, and people voting, particularly when it comes to democracies on the basis of the economy, uh, like technocratic people and managerial types who think the economy is the stock market or GDP or whatever. But to most people, the economy means you know, what's my quality of life? Uh, have I got prospects for increased wages? Have I got prospects for a good job, paid work that, you know, that I find meaningful and so on? And um, this is becoming less and less correlated with with GDP over time. Um, and yet, you know, again, to look at it from a new optimist point of view, you might say, well, the economy is still growing, so what's the problem? Um, and it's sort of ignoring these changing distributional things under the hood. I mean, where, would you would you like to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, there's, you know, the old saying that if uh, me and Bill Gates are in the same room, our sort of GDP per capita is 50 billion, right? <laughs> um, so, so yeah, G- GDP, uh, by, by definition, doesn't really say what you want it to say in terms of, of, of living standards. 
Um, it's just an, an, an average of, of all the market activity that occurred in a, in a, all the marketable as well. I mean, in, in terms of any, any activity that had some sort of economic exchange, just add it up and divide by, uh, the number of people. Um, and there's, there's been, you know, there's a growing number of books and, uh, greater awareness of, of the limitations that an indicator like, like GDP has. I definitely think, you know, these indicators serve a purpose, but they cannot be taken as the kind of end all to, to policy, to economic policy. And I think that's a particular problem in the countries that have been more obsessed with, uh, you know, the, the neoliberal market mentality. Uh, I see this in Mexico a lot. Um, you see it a lot in, in, in Latin America, uh, maybe even more than, than in countries like the US or the UK. Uh, this, uh, this obsession, there's, there's a classic saying, uh, here in Mexico, and I've always had this argument with a lot of my, my right-leaning, uh, friends or colleagues. And it's basically like, well, we can't redeem, we can't redistribute until we grow. And I'm like, we're richer now than Sweden was when Sweden established its welfare state. So, you know, <laughs> at what point, just give me the number that you want us to start redistributing. And also that kind of belies the idea that maybe you would grow more if there weren't so many limitations that are kind of imposed by the fact that not everyone is involved or not everyone is benefiting equally from the growth. Even assuming that GDP grows faster in one society than another, that, that does not say that one, that society is, is better off in any you know practical way. And I think Americans understand this the moment that they live in Europe. Um, because if you look at GDP per capita, the U.S. is one of the highest in the world. You know, there's only a few European countries that have a higher GDP per capita. You know, Norway, Switzerland, Luxembourg. Um, aside from that, the U.S. is probably, you know, 10 or 20 percent richer per head than, than most European countries. But there's just no comparison in the standard of living. You know, I've lived in the U.S., so I, I can I can say this with uh, with some degree of, of experience quite extensively. You know, I've, I've lived there. I've studied there. Um, and I've lived in, in Britain for 13 years now as well and uh, lived briefly in, in, in some other parts. And, uh, you know, aside from much bigger houses and f- giant front lawns, uh, you know, the standard of living in Europe is, is, is just so much easier. There's, there's less things that you worry about in Europe than you do in the U.S. Uh, and that's thanks to the welfare state. Um, the, the, and, and you can see that in terms of kind of, the what the well-being of, of of these societies you know they're healthier you know the u.s has actually suffered from a from a decrease in life expectancy in the last couple of years or, uh, and i think the uk has has stagnated so even that indicator which again the the optimists love to quote has not been growing uh in these countries so when when you have a society that cares about things that aren't gdp when they care about having uh egalitarianism um, there's less things to worry about, even if your your paycheck is smaller. And I think in general, that leads to a better life and a, that, that leads to happier societies. And it's not a coincidence that the happier societies in this world tend to be the ones with, with bigger welfare states, you know, the Nordics, the, the, the countries where you, you have to lear, worry less about in life. And there's something very interesting as well. Um, one of these indicators of, I think, economic... No, it's, it's, I don't know if it's one of the, if it's the happiness index. Well, one of them has a sub index of, uh, individual freedom. 
And these are all surveys, so they're serving people. Um, and, and I found that actually the US and the UK scored lower than many of the uh, social democratic countries on, on individual freedom. So it's like even the people themselves in these supposedly free societies that the libertarians want to, want to think that are, are the ideal ways of organizing society, people are less free. And that's, and that's a fact. And that's, I think, a fact that I think a lot of Americans do not understand until they go and live in Europe. It's like how, how unfree you are relative to a German, uh, even if the German pays higher taxes. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of limited interpretation of freedom as well, but I think that's the idea that you come back to with the welfare state is actually having a safety net gives you freedom. It gives you the freedom to do any of the things that you know you you might want to do in terms of the freedom of how you spend your time, in terms of the freedom of uh, association, in terms of the freedom of moving from job to job. You know, in terms of the freedom of even you know being an entrepreneur and so on. It's the kind of thing that actually having a safety net gives you those freedoms in a way that a much more uh, brutal kind of individualistic and and competitive uh, dynamic um, does not give you the freedom. Um, even though you might say that you're subject to fewer regulations once you're a hedge fund manager or something, that doesn't actually translate that much to individual freedom on the ground. No, there's also an issue of, and, and this is one of the final points that I make in the book, um, is, is this idea that we really need to expand the definition of, of liberalism uh, into areas where it doesn't apply. And, and you know, I, I give, I start one of the chapters with the example of, uh, of, of working nine to five in, in uh, North Korea. Um, you know, a hypothetical situation where a South Korean travels to the North. He's still a South Korean citizen, but while he's working in North, he doesn't have any of the rights that he has in the South. And if you think about it, that's kind of your workplace. Like the moment that you step into your, your workplace, you lose practically all the rights that you have as a, as a public citizen. You know, the, 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 the rights that you have, uh, to, you know, choose your, choose your, uh, your leaders in public, um, freedom of speech, freedom of association, things like that a freedom to not be spied on or monitored or whatever. You lose them the moment that you walk into a into your workplace. And, and that is why workplace democracy is a fundamental uh, aspect of, of, of socialism. And it's it's where and it's a major source of unfreedom and unhappiness, I think. You know, the the more the more liberal you are economically, the more restrictive you are in your rights as an economic citizen. Uh, aside, aside from being a consumer. And I think that's the big limitation of, of sort of the liber- libertarian idea that it's only as a consumer that you express your, your economic democracy. And I think that's absolutely wrong. And the, you need to express that as well as, a, as in your part in the productive process, you know, in your part as an employer, an employee. Um, and, you know, you are freer if you're in a union, you know, they will argue that it's actually less free because unions uh, reduce the scope for entrepreneurialism and, you know, what a company can do, blah, blah, blah. But actually you are freer if you're in a union. Uh, you are freer in a, in a situation where you have a voice in what your company does. So like Germany and its system of co-determination. And it's, it's, that, it's when you reconcile this very limited of view of freedom, which the libertarian 
optimist and to some extent the centrist as well because they're mostly against these kind of things. Uh, so when you realize, well, we're, we're not heading in the right direction there. We're, we're less free than now than we are before. You know, Unionization rates are lower than they've ever been. Um, the more that you deregulate labor markets, the less freedoms you have as a as employees, sorry. I think it's so fascinating to think about the different definitions of these terms as well, you know, progress, freedom, the way that the definitions of them are narrowed. Progress doesn't become about moral progress in terms of having a more equal society or in terms of having a more sustainable society, but instead it's these are the metrics which will allow you to look at to judge progress by. And it'll be GDP per capita, or it'll be World Bank poverty statistic or something. And, and that's what you have to look at. And then similarly, freedom, as you say, it, exactly. Um, freedom as expressed as your consumer choice, um, or freedom as expressed as the uh, regulations that businesses are subject to, because corporations are people who deserve First Amendment rights and so on. Another major point that your book makes really well is that this quantitative statistics-oriented approach, this kind of like I guess, weak history approach that says that society has simply progressed over time um, and is progressing towards, as like Francis Fukuyama might say, the end of history where everything is just a liberal capitalist democracy and that's how we finish. Um, this, this ignores shifting politics, which in a sense are a symptom of the fact that things can't be that great as ordinary people have rejected this sort of established liberal order of things by voting for right-wing populists like Donald Trump and Bolsonaro, projects of right-wing populism like Brexit, voters, particularly in younger generations, which we see in survey after survey, seem incredibly dissatisfied with liberal democracy and the status quo. Um, so how much do you think this narrative just completely breaks down when it ignores all of these political changes and political forces um, that are perhaps difficult to to quantify? Yeah, I don't think they have a neither a good diagnosis of the problem, much less a, a solution. I think the, the problem that the sense that I get from Pinker is that, you know, Again, going back to this obsession over over rationality, that well, people who vote for Trump or who vote Brexit are just irrational. Uh, they need to be enlightened, and if they read my book, then they might be enlightened. And I, I just don't think that if you gave everyone a copy of Enlightenment Now or Factfulness, they're going to change their voting habits. Um, you know, th- these these voting habits are rooted in much deeper structural issues. You know, a sense of of uh, of powerlessness, I, th- I think that's that's sort of the the underlying feeling that a lot of the, this dissatisfaction is rooted in. Um, just just feeling that you do not have a control over your life, and it starts with economics, and then it spreads over over other things. It spreads to a rejection of of you know social change, which is always a threat, or well perceived as a threat rather, and it, it is a bit of a perfect storm. Um, in terms of you know the inequality happening at the same time that you have a lot of social change, and it's it's always a threat. I think I think there's elements of you know previously I, I, I mentioned that I don't think inequality is the sole explaining factor of of uh, this new new right. Um, I think that's a very limited view as well. Um, but I, I definitely think that these other aspects, you know, xenophobia. Uh, bigotry, etc., which in some ways are rooted from that same sentiment of powerlessness, means that if you at least had solved the economic issues, then people would not be worrying so much about a brown person moving in next to you or your job being replaced by someone else. And they would 
and they would not have the scapegoat to really, you know, the thing about Brexit that frustrates me more is that everything that they, you know, I, I sympathize with a lot of the arguments that they gave, except the EU had nothing to do with that. <laughs> you know, every single problem that they mentioned about Brexit could be traced back to the British government. So they should be angry at their leaders. They should be angry at their, you know, political and economic elites. Um, and so, yeah, the scapegoating is only possible if you have the economic uh, injustice aspect of it. So it, it's, it's really tricky because, again, they, you know, the libertarian side of, of the optimists just assumed that they don't even, I don't get a sense that they're, they're, I mean, they're not unhappy about this. I mean, libertarians and are, are probably see Trump and Brexit as a good thing. Uh, because it opens the scope for more free markets, more deregulation, etc. Um, the centrists, I think, have a kind of visceral objection to the uncouthness of, of a lot of these politicians. You know, I don't think Pinker is a fan of Trump at all, uh, or or Boris Johnson either. Uh, it definitely goes against the kind of type of sensible moderates that, that we've been used to, and which is the kind of people that they'd want in power. So I definitely think that, you know, like Pinker is definitely a democratic voter. I have no doubt about that. Um, but I, I don't think he sees any vision of, of like the democratic party aside from this kind of standard Biden or Clinton era uh, or Obama era types, um, because he doesn't want to give space to, to ideas that are more to the left than that. Um, which in, in a sense means that you haven't solved the problem because if, if these people are running on a platform of, well, let's just go back to normal. Well, normal was, wasn't good enough. And, you know, maybe we're at least Americans, maybe should be lucky that, that they had an incompetent fascist in power for the last four years, because once they get a competent one, things will be much worse. Um, so yeah, there's, their solution to this is, is, is nonsensical. And, and I think it doesn't, it doesn't go beyond just thinking that, that you, you should just read a book about enlightenment and suddenly you'll be enlightened. I think it's an interesting point that you make when you're saying we can't put the rise of Trump and Brexit and uh, right-wing um, populism and authoritarianism to an extent solely down to these economic factors. And that, of course, there are these cultural points and these culture war points. Um, and, you know, xenophobia, racism comes into that as well. What, one thing that I find myself thinking increasingly, especially this year, um, especially seeing the way that the media responds to a lot of things this year is that these it's almost as if the culture war is the 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 proxy that establishment politicians want to be fighting about they want to be fighting about the symbolism of is there uh the, are we singing the lyrics to this patriotic song in the royal albert hall this year for the proms or whatever they want to be fighting about did you take a knee or did you not take a knee for the black lives matter movement and so on because they know that this is safe territory for them that isn't going to challenge existing power structures, that isn't going to challenge um, existing economic power and financial power. And, and instead, people will divide into a group of, you know, well, I, I strongly identify with my nationality and therefore I'll vote for this right-wing party or I don't want to be seen as racist or I don't want to be involved with racism. I find that abhorrent and therefore I will vote for this other party. And it sort of allows them to ignore and sideline the issues that there is some consensus on in favor of this symbolism 
And instead, they would just rather that we focus on these these issues. And this is not to belittle the importance of of, of racism and you know homophobia or anything in our societies, but it's just to say that it's the territory that a lot of politicians would prefer to be fighting on rather than talking about these broader questions of economic justice. I mean, would you agree with that? Oh, completely. I mean, absolutely. I think the culture war has been just so convenient to gloss over all the structural issues that we really should be dedicating most of our time discussing. <clears throat> and instead, we're talking about a football player kneeling during the anthem. Um, it's There's a, there's a phrase from uh, Andrew Breitbart, which is, uh, politics is downstream from culture. And sadly, he's right. And I think that's part of the reason why he was able to kind of build up this, this alt-right empire. Uh, because he understood that. He understood that it's much easier to kind of stoke people when it's an, when it's an issue related to culture than whether it's something, you know, more technocratic or boring. Because, I mean, we're enjoying this debate about the nuances of GDP and, and the poverty line, but the grand majority of people might not find that interesting at all. And, and you know, they're, they're, they would rather discuss kind of the threat of, of, of open borders uh, or is, you know, trans rights going too far. Um, there, there's something kind of more, more visceral about these, these issues. You know, the, it's, it's unfortunate that, the right has, has has managed to use this so effectively and, and weaponized, for example, freedom of speech so well. Um, I, I have can't count how many people I've had debates on, you know, on Facebook and Twitter, uh, who are basically fascist, you know, absolutely bigoted people, who through the veneer of freedom of speech managed to gloss it over and and never come out as as actual, you know, openly bigoted. Um, if you see a lot of these kind of alt-right YouTubers, um, that's what they do. They don't come out and they say that they're they're transphobic or or misogynistic. They they gloss it over through freedom of speech or you know the uh, slippery slope arguments. Uh, you know, if we move in in this direction culturally, next thing you know, we have Maoism. And and one person who who does this really well is Jordan Peterson, uh, who. Like any any aspect of that he's and anything that he that reeks even mildly of egalitarianism uh, or collectivism, for him it's a slippery slope to to basically Maoist China, um, and and Peterson uses the Pinker arguments all the time as well when he when he defends kind of Western uh, Enlightenment and uh, and capitalism he does it using the exact same Pinker arguments, uh, so. They all, they all, you know, I, I've heard the Pinker arguments uh, from Ben Shapiro. I've seen them from others. I mean, there's a chapter in my book that basically discusses kind of these links between um, the uh, Pinker and, and, and the alt-right. You know, I, I don't want to say that, that he's part of that in any way, um, but he has kind of opened the door for this to be used by them. And he's he's often shared platforms in which the arguments that he gives against progressives are identical to the ones that, again, the Ben Shapiro's and the Jordan Peterson's would be given. Mm -hmm. And, and they, really they will adopt his rhetoric. And the interesting thing about that is that actually the alt-right project in a lot of ways um, is defending the status quo in the same way. They're defending the economic status quo. They're defending kind of the, the power structure status quo. And 
to get the insurgency that they require, they have to attack the uh, perceived cultural hegemony of li- liberals to sort of say, well, we are on the side of the people versus the powerful, but only in the context of the people don't want to use your fancy pronouns and would rather, um, you know, <laughs> misgender you or whatever it is, you know, that that's the dividing line that they want to draw instead. Yeah, and they're all libertarians at heart or, or very close to libertarians, like all these alt-right people. Um, but yeah, it, it's, you you can't, it's much more easier to, to just argue on the, on the, on the cultural grounds, because in, if anything, that is a testament to how the kind of free market neoliberal project no longer, you cannot promote it on its own, on its own merits. You know, you cannot run a platform on, on trickle down or supply side theories. It's, it's just, you, you, if you want to lose an election, that's, that's what you do. Um, mm-hmm. And if you think, if you look at the Republicans, what, what they did uh, for this election, I mean, they, their, their basic argument was to paint Biden and Harris as socialist, which is absolutely ludicrous. You know, they, they don't have a single socialist, not even a bone on their body, not even a single socialist cell in their body. The, the record of these policies in the last 30, 40 years has made them thoroughly unpopular. And so it's so much easier to just run on cultural uh, policies than on economic ones. And I think in a way that we have to also say that there's a wing of the liberalism that I feel just seems to think itself so disempowered and so incapable of doing anything, um, at least in Western countries like the UK and the US, beyond a kind of managed decline, that they're also happy to fight on the same ground. And they're also happy for um, you know, their solution to problems to be on these symbolic and cultural issues. Um, and... Yeah, and that and, in turn is a project that won't succeed in the long term because it's not going to address the fundamental reasons of why people voted for Trump and why people voted for Brexit. You know, if you think those are bad outcomes, then simply branding the people who did that as racist and and fighting it on a culture war thing is is not going to address the concerns of people who did not benefit from or do not want to see a continuation of the status quo. Yeah, and one of the interesting things is is when you when you hear this argument from the right wingers. Um, you know, that the left is out of control because of cancel culture and uh, they're against freedom of speech, blah, 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 and all this excess wokeness. And, and you actually, you know, if you, if you actually do your job and sort of dig in and see who are these woke, like these uber woke people, yes, there is a tiny fringe of, of, of the left who's involved in this, you know, sort of young campus, uh, college campus types. But actually, like, the the main kind of expressions of wokeness in a in a more material sense is actually coming from 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 businesses you know companies who who think that wokeness is profitable so they're jumping on the bandwagon and they're just basically you know they're not woke uh they they don't embrace this wokeness they they just use it as as a tool for making more profits um, you know, Nike, Nike hiring Colin Kaepernick, uh, or these Gillette ads. Uh, so it, yeah. it's not Black even lives matter as long as they're not in the sweatshops that we run, you know, <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's, so who is like, if you look at the socialist left, like sort of the Bernie Sanders supporting types, they actually are, aren't woke at all. <laughs> and there's, there's like an entire ecosystem, you know, it's called the, the dirtbag left, which is very politically incorrect, very, you know, it's very socialist, very pro Bernie, but they're they're not into this wokeness uh, at all, or at least 
not in, you know, you can have a discussion about these things in, in ways that reflect, I think, the the reasonable position that we need to we need to work for that these things are not a threat to us. You know, trans rights are not a threat to anyone. Uh, gay rights are not a threat to us. And, and, you know, these are people and we need to change legislation. We need to change behaviors to uh, embrace them as people uh, without going into these ridiculous, like uh, calling out people and, you know, banning them from here or there. Uh, which I think is, is is definitely counterproductive and and only hurts the right. I mean, sorry, only benefits the right. I, I mean, with the the cultural stuff, it's just it's got to the stage now where, particularly in the UK media, you know, when there'll be some other story about this, and it'll be some other celebrity who's been cancelled, or some other patriotic song or flag or statue that's been taken down or whatever, and you just think, whenever I see these stories now, I just think. Who is pushing this and what are they trying to distract me from? Because I know there's stuff going on that's a lot more important than this. I mean, we have the worst economic and public health crisis in a century. Um, and it just seems amazing that we are spending even a fraction of our public discourse on these things at the time, um, at this time. And yet it seems to have intensified, if anything. This this is a big question, but but what I think your critique of new optimism really shows is that the idea that we can simply allow current trends to continue and expect this to deliver prosperity and happiness to everyone, which is fundamentally what new optimists are selling, is, is obviously fatally flawed. And one thing that I should stress as well that I really wanted to point out, perhaps in a different discussion we would have talked about it more, but it's um, we talk, you've talked so often about how the important metric is not how well we are doing, but how well we should be doing. And one of the aspects of how well we should be doing is remembering that for the progress that we've made, the ecological destruction that it has entailed is massive. And the potential that our way of life and our wealth extraction at the moment is not sustainable um, is massive. And the amount of CO2 that we've dumped into the atmosphere to achieve all of this is massive. And we know that the impacts of this will disproportionately fall on the poorest and the most vulnerable at the moment. And so to say that it's a justifiable trade to trade off all of that uh, environmental uh, stability and uh, biodiversity and uh, potential future stability for our planet was a worthwhile trade, um, given the people who that environmental damage is going to impact, just seems even more egregiously wrong when you actually account for the fact that we have made a trade. You know, We haven't just uh, developed prosperity in exchange for nothing. Um, so in, in the example of the... Uh, $99 versus $1 split. We've sort of, we've given some people $99, other people $1, and we've also set their house on fire, you know? <laughs> so it's um, it's, it's a, even less egalitarian than it might look when you ignore the ecological impacts of what we've done so far. Um, but, but leaving that aside, the um, the new optimists, you know, that the idea is that we can sit complacently back and know that our current institutions will solve all of these problems with climate change, nuclear weapons, automation, whatever it's going to be, that there's no need for any transformative ideas. Um, but history hasn't ended. And we've seen that it has progressed endlessly through these radical transformations in society that always needed new ideas, whether it's the agricultural and industrial revolutions, liberal democratic revolutions that displaced autocrats beforehand, the welfare state, trade unionism, and then even, you know, a form of progress that, that we might despair at, but a, a different form of transition from the dismantling of that post-war project to establish what we would now call neoliberalism. So your point is that history hasn't ended and our intellectual development hasn't ended. 
and we haven't reached the end point of society and civilization. And to progress further then, and more evenly, we need new ideas um, rather than just a little bit of tinkering. So with that in mind, and you talk about this towards the end of the book, and I think it's really interesting to explore in the time we have left, what do you think we should do to make the glass a little bit fuller? You know, what are the things you would like to see happening in the world to fix some of these problems in a way that we're just not doing at the moment? Well, um, given my background as an economist, I, I, I think most of my recommendations were were geared towards uh, economic conditions. Um, most of these, I think, if you solve a lot of these, you know, the the spillovers will will benefit in in, in many other ways. Um, I'm also, for example, I'm not a climate scientist, so I can't you know write an entire chapter on on solutions to climate change. I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't have uh, no expertise on how to end pandemics. Uh, mm-hmm. My the main gist of of what I'm arguing is what we need is we need the societies that give people more control over their lives. And we need to do this by extending the values that we now accept as a given, uh, you know, as, as a minimum standard of how to govern society uh, in the public sphere, but we need to translate those into the private sphere. So all the rights, uh, all the um, responsibilities, you know, all the rights that people have as workers should be sort of the similar ones that we have as voters and all the responsibilities that uh, politicians have as political leaders. Well, our economic leaders should have as well as employers. And for me, the reason, you know, I I make no bones about it, that I, that, you know, we do need to move to a situation where we do have workplace democracy, where we do have, uh, worker ownership of the means of production, which is a fundamental, it's, you know, it's the original tenet of what socialism is. It's not, it's not state ownership. It's, it's workers controlling what they produce. It's, it's, uh, it's bringing labor back in equal footing to capital. Um, in, we need to, I've given some examples as well as, as direct democracy where this could work and where this could empower people, especially on a local level, I think. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not a fan of, of direct democracy on a, on a national level. I think it could be a bit too chaotic, uh, but definitely on a local level, there's examples, you know, Brazil has, has a lot of examples. I did my, uh, my master's thesis on, on, on Brazil. Uh, you know, the, these things empower people and give them choice and it's more efficient than, than giving, you know, leaders in the capital, the decisions on, on, on what to do. You know, no one knows what's best for you in, in kind of the area where you live, the area where you go to work than, than you. Uh, and you should have a decision on, on that. And definitely democratizing the international the system of, of international governance, which is a product of a global order that doesn't really represent reality anymore. You know, it's a, it's a construction of the post. It's a construction by the winners of World War II, uh, assuming that those conditions would would uh, never change. And I think uh, that's not the case now. And it leaves too much decision-making on global issues to a, a very small number of countries. And just as a whole, I think, um, you know, if, if I, if I sort of go on with, with, with all the things that we should do, we're going to spend another, another two hours here. So all, all I'd say yes. is re- read, read the book. But I think <laughs> the, the message is basically we will not really move forward as individual societies and as a, as a species, you know, as humanity, which is what Pinker loves and, and the New Optimists, they love to speak of, of humanity as a whole. 
we will not move forward until we separate political power from economic power, which I think is the single biggest detriment we have to achieving the kind of progress that we would want. I feel like everyone I interview these days, I kind of have to ask whether they've updated their point of view in light of the pandemic and in light of COVID-19. Um, we've talked about how it's accelerated inequality, accelerated a lot of ongoing trends in a negative way. Do you think that it's also burst the new optimist bubble a bit? And it's also hard to say that the state is powerless and that the market has to sort everything out when we've seen the kinds of massive state intervention in response to a crisis that we have in fact seen in countries recently. Yeah. So in the, I, I think the, you know, even though I didn't really write about pandemics in the book uh, at all, I, I do think it it has vindicated sort of the central thesis of the book. I think in in the very short term, as in the next couple of years, I would definitely be on the pessimistic side because I think the our record with with crisis like this uh, in the neoliberal era is not very positive in terms of uh, structural change. And, you know, the, 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 the global financial crisis is a great example. I mean, we, we completely botched any opportunity to make substantial change uh, to how society is run when we had the worst crisis at the time since the Great Depression. And now we have another crisis that's the new biggest crisis since the Great Depression. And just how many crises can we have before we realize that this is just a cycle of, of, of instability and, and, and recession? So I think in the long run, maybe not, I am optimistic in the, in the long run, although I worry that we will finally get the common sense to do the changes we need uh, when it's too late, uh, at least with regard to climate change. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that, that climate change is an existential risk in the sense that we'll die off as a species, but I do think that it's just going to leave it so much harder, like it's 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 condemning humanity and certain, uh, big parts of humanity from just not achieving the progress that that was promised. Now, um, you know, if if uh, one of the arguments that Matt Ridley gives is that he says that actually it's not that bad if if uh, some degree of of uh, global warming occurs because it's going to open all this landmass in the north that currently can't be used for agriculture. Uh, it's going to now it's going to be able to be farmed. And I'm like, well, what about the people in the tropics who are going to lose their, their, uh, their crops? Now they're going to have to import this food from Canada and Russia. So it's going to benefit some countries and it's going to be benefit. And it's going to make the, the countries that are already poor, poorer still. So, so I'm worried that we're going to, we're going to learn the lesson when it's too late and that the countries, uh, especially in, in my part of the world uh, are are just going to get get lost. You know, the, the ladder has been kicked and it's not going to be put back up again. Um, I think I am optimistic in the sense that there is certain, certain ideas that I think were taboo in even 10 years ago are now being expressed openly. And I think we really need to thank people like Bernie Sanders, uh, even if they or Jeremy Corbyn, even if they didn't win, that these ideas are out there. And now, you know, it's, it was unthinkable 10 years ago that Americans could discuss universal health care. Absolutely unthinkable. And it took one guy with the balls to do it, uh, to run on a platform uh, of universal health care to suddenly make people think, hey, actually, this is a good idea. And something like 70 percent of Americans now want this. Even half of Republicans want this. Um, so I think changing uh, 
going up against modern capitalism is a monumental undertaking because um, I, I, I've heard a definition of it a couple of days ago that I really liked. Um, neoliberalism isn't an economic ideology. It's a technology of power. And it's a technology of power because it works so effectively at merging political and economic power to the point that, and not just that, and, and cultural power as well, uh, to the point that it's impossible to imagine how the world would work without it. And, and that's the argument that you hear from people like Mark Fisher, you know, Slavoj Žižek, uh, et cetera, that, you know, it's, it's uh, easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. But I think we're, we're in the, in the moment where we can at least discuss it in ways that we couldn't before. And so I think as long as we don't have this discussion, as, as, as long as we're not stuck with this idea, this Fukuyamist idea that we're at the end of idea, not just at the end of history, but at the end of ideas, which I think is what Pinker really wants to promote and the optimists want to promote. The moment that we discard that and, and see that as ridiculous and think and, and, you know, sit down and say, Hey, no, we need to discuss this. We need these ideas. Um, then we, we will have reason to be optimistic. Just with respect to climate change and COVID, lots of people have drawn parallels between them. I think I see the parallel coming in the same way that you do, um, which is that both climate change and COVID, they've proved to be crises for the established order of things. But in the distribution of their impacts, um, which has disproportionately fallen on the, the poorest and most vulnerable and uh, between different nations and so on. You know, it, it's not been a crisis that's been enough to overturn the existing system in the way that the crises that, that Walter Scheidel talked about have done. And instead, it just becomes, um, you know, I think of climate change, some people think about it like the end of the world. I think of it as just a sort of general enshittening of the world. You know, things get a lot harder to do. Things get a lot more difficult to uh, accomplish. There's more uh, natural disasters and more inequality and more trouble for the regions of the world that are already struggling. And this problem just accelerates and builds and builds up over time. Um, it's it's a more sort of long, slow uh, decline and force that acts to enhance inequality in the world um, than it necessarily is a, an immediate crisis that forces you to change uh, what you're doing. And of course, the the sort of dynamics that are going on at the moment can continue for a very long time, even as climate change continues to get worse and worse. And you can see a scenario where it does just continue to act as this uh, malevolent, malign and destabilizing force that enhances and accelerates inequality. And um, the, the, the last thing I want to talk about is when you talk about ideas coming back into the Overton window of politics, you know, one, one uh, book I read recently that I enjoyed was um, Kurt Anderson's book, Evil Geniuses, um, which is kind of about how the American conservative movement and the neoliberal movement arose and how it began with Barry Goldwater, who was roundly defeated in, you know, 1963 or whenever it was that he lost. Um, and then 20 years later, you know, his ideas um, through Ronald Reagan and uh, to a lesser extent, Margaret Thatcher, you know, became the, the dominant paradigm that, that ran much of the world. So I think if you want to be optimistic, like you say, it has to kind of be in the long term uh, that these ideas... Um, you know, it, initially they do lose, but once they get into the public consciousness, can ultimately change the the sort of orthodoxy amongst people who run things. And I think it's that kind of long term where you have to look to for optimism. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I just think that the difference between uh, so if we were having this conversation in uh, the 1950s, uh, 
we would still be work operating on a on a mindset that you know we could still have kind of infinite growth we were not going to run out of resources there's not going to be uh uh you're not going to lose uh cropland because of rising temperature this is the sea won't rise as well whereas now we have to factor that into account and that's that that's what really hurts like i i have more faith in the political aspect than on the uh, economic aspect precisely because of climate change and i think one of the things i tried to do with the book is 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 present climate change as, as kind of the elephant in the room um because i don't really talk about it until the end but it's it's sort of there it's like this lingering shadow that that you can't really you know every single policy that you take now has to take that into account and we don't see it because it's so slow it's it's just not well we are seeing it i mean last couple of summers uh, in london even in london when i came to london like summers were pretty bad last couple of summers have been great um so we are seeing these things uh, already but not fast enough that we are that worried about it 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 becomes a very insidious problem because as you say it is a little bit like the elephant in the room the sort of voice that's saying you know this can't go on forever uh, regardless of how much you might want it to um rodrigo i want to say thank you so much for being so generous with your time and also for writing the glass half empty which i think bills itself as debunking the new optimists i think it does much much more than that it is you know it's it's a diagnosis of the situation that we're in at the moment and it provides at the end um which which you mentioned you know some potential pathways out of it and i think it, it's a very um important book and i hope that you know people who are listening to this will uh, will go out and read it and uh, thank you very much for writing it and for being so generous with your time today to come on the show yeah well thank you for for the invitation and uh, i'm glad to see that you like the book and uh, yeah definitely to your listeners uh, I, I hope you'll enjoy it i trust i imagine that the people who listen to a podcast like this will will have an affinity with the ideas in the book so uh, and and even though it's written by an economist and it has a tons of, of of charts i think it's quite readable but i might be biased <laughs> Oh, I think so. I think we're pro-charts here as well. <laughs> if, if we have an ideology, it is pro-charts. Definitely. Yeah, that's it's the chart that binds us. <laughs> okay. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. And thanks again to Rodrigo Aguilera for coming on the show. You can find his book, The Glass Half Empty, on sale at Repeater Books in ebook and paperback form right now. And you can catch up with his writings at the LSE blog and in other places. I really do recommend the book because it dives into a whole range of different issues from economics to politics, um, social issues, in, in far more depth than we had time to catch up with even in the course of these interviews. And you'll find a lot to contemplate there and think about one way or the other. It's very, very thought-provoking and an antidote to a, a type of argument that we see a lot of these days. Remember, you can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com. We rely on your donations to keep the show going, which you can do via the PayPal link on that website. You can also subscribe to the show at patreon.com slash physicalattraction. If you did that, you would have heard this episode months ago, as all the episodes there are released pretty much the second I've finished editing them, alongside numerous bonus episodes which are only available to subscribers. Thank you so much to everyone who's currently supporting the show and all of your favourite independent content creators that way. It means an awful lot to me and them that you can help them in doing the things that they want to do and spending time on them. If you have any comments, questions, concerns about the show, you can get in touch via the contact form on physicspodcast.com. I try to respond individually to every email that I get, as those of you who've corresponded with me before will know, so please do get in touch if there's anything you'd like to chat about. Of course, if you don't want to do that, you can also support us by telling as many other people who might be interested in such idle questions as how to make the world a better place to take a listen. 
Again, unlike whichever celebrity has started a podcast this week or the big networks, we are independent and rely on listeners to help us spread the word of the show. So if you found it interesting, please do tell other folks who might be interested to give the episode a listen. Until next time then, please do take care.